1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Arshad Guha, your host. Today we're joined by Professor Sarah Vaughan. Sarah Vaughan is an assistant professor in the anthropology department, at the University of California, Berkeley. As an ethnographer and critical social theorist, Professor Vaughan is interested in questions around climate change adaptation in the Caribbean and what implications that has for the fields of science and technology studies, the Environmental Humanities, and Critical Race and Ethnicity Studies. Her PhD dissertation, based on fieldwork in Guyana, led to the publication of her first book, Engineering Vulnerability, which combines a range of thought-provoking, methodological, theoretical, and empirical inquiries. Engineering Vulnerability has been awarded the inaugural Duke University Press Scholars of Colour First Book Award in 2021, and the 2022 Julian Stewart Award. The award is presented annually by the Anthropology and Environment Society of the American Anthropological Association for the best monograph in environmental and ecological anthropology. Welcome to uh, the Bu- New Books Network, Sarah. Um, so wonderful to have you here and uh, to be discussing your wonderful, thought provoking um, first monograph. Engineering Vulnerability. Um, Thank you for joining us.
0: Of course. No, thank you for the invitation. Um, It's always great to be able to share um, your thoughts, especially after the fact of publication (laughs) and with as many people as possible or who are willing to be patient. So thanks.
1: Um, So as you know, um, on most New Books Network podcasts, the first question is biographical and reflexive. Um, So I wonder if you could give our listeners um, a a sense of your journey to writing this book um, and, you know, what inspired you, um, how you came to think about this um, project and conceive of it and how it, you know, uh, transformed from your PhD dissertation into your first book. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I guess there are like two ways to tell that story. The first is more personal. Uh, You know, I'm originally from Chicago. I'm actually in Chicago right now. So it actually reminded me this morning because I saw an article in the New York Times about how, um, you know, the excessive heat here over, I don't know, past decades or so is causing the ground to um, sink, supposedly. I've yet to read the full article, but that was the headline. and so it just made me think about my time growing up here and I know the city really well because I would run along the lake and, um, you know, yes, waves would crash and you'd get some minor flooding. Um, but definitely in the past decades when I'd come on back and forth to the city, um, flooding has been, you know, quite a problem, a nuisance, more or less people would talk about it as a nuisance now, um and along that side you know we had some flooding a couple of days ago and i was thinking yeah this is not guyana not because of all of the water but because i don't see the drains i don't see the canals everything is underground right part of that story about um About the excessive heat right now is what's going to happen to all the water as we have to rethink how you think about the underground of the city. So, with that said, when I started to go to Guyana in 2006, I was just taken by the fact that you could see all of these dams well, of course, the dams, but all of these drainage channels above ground. And it was in everyone's face, everyone knew where it was, what they would do. I don't think you could say that to most Chicagoans, <laughs> where the water goes, what the trains look like, of course not, because you don't see them. So I was taken by this idea that it was sort of common sense that so many people in Guyana understood where the drains were, what they do, as well as it just sort of imposing on your everyday, right? You get off a bus, so you better know where the trench is. If not, you might fall in or dip your, your toe in. Um, so I wanted to have a story about that. And it happened to be, um, when I started to go in 2006, the year before, was a disastrous flood there. And so most of the work going on there was around the work of engineers and managing these drains and the EDWC as I detail in the book. So that's how I came to the project on a sort of a personal note, just a fascination with what was so unfamiliar to me. Um, and then the more professional sort of intellectual note was, you know, um as opposed to what I was reading in the canon of Caribbean studies at the time. And, you know, this is undergrad into graduate school. So the early two thousands um, area studies for Caribbean, for, for the Caribbean was very much, and still is arguably um, denoted around um, themes and ideas about race and particularly post identity. And, you know, that all made sense, but at the same time, you know, my trips to Guyana, it was almost sort of like, again, everyone understood that was a problem, but they also wanted to talk about other things. And other things were on the tip of their tongues and were understood to be, in a cunning way, very much working around the very um sort of racial nationalist discourses that had failed them, frankly, for quite some time in many different kinds of ways. And, of course, for different populations in, in um probably greater ways or lesser ways, but it was very clear to me that everyone came to the problem of race, understood it was there, but also understood their futures and and what they wanted out of life as as defined beyond those nationalist projects. And so um, these climate adaptation projects seem to be an interesting way to get at the problem and to to push against and challenge perhaps that sort of um, area studies conversation.
1: Wonderful. Um, Yeah, no, really... um gives me a sense of um, the ways in which the um, timing as well of your project in terms of this being, you know, the post-2005 moment um, when there was this flooding disaster um, in Guyana, which becomes kind of the pivot and watershed moment almost in your your book as well in terms of the narrative. Um, I, and, you know, just this um, interplay between the past and futurity as well uh in terms of um race um and what in the book you call counter racial um imaginings right um and how climate adaptation in some ways makes that possible um and i wonder if you could um, tell um the listeners a little bit about um apanjat which is you know the the sort of grounding um, racial ideology, which is um, you know being challenged in this process, um, how you came to kind of encounter that um, in the midst of these uh, conversations, and how that that kind of became an anchor for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks. So, apendjata is sort of <laughs> it's sort of ugly because on the one hand. Um, for the longest time, going uh, again, since 2006, and in, frankly, I'll, I'll make another watershed moment, 2015 or so in American context, I was trying to think about what could be a, a parallel that would be easy for people to grasp, at least in a Euro or, or North American context. And so, you know, um, Donald Trump, perhaps, um, arguably, and sort of in an ugly way, might be a parallel in terms of make America great again. So when I think about, and when I would hear Up and Jot in Guyana, the phrase itself, often, more, more often than not, you see it written in newspaper articles, particularly editorials. You'll hear it around election time, as people say. Um, and you'll often hear it in a more kind of a formalized manner in terms of talking about what it means to think about the, the, the shifts in um, political administrations in, in Guyana. With that said, though, you do understand, and there's a kind of personal and private sort of way in which people understand Openshot, and they talk about it in terms of how it is that they might decide who they marry, who they want to work with. Because even though Guyana is, um, in terms of space, a large country, the size of a, about the UK, perhaps, you do have most of the country who lives along the coast around 90%. And so there's still like very clear segregation in terms of how people live and, and work. and And pray, go to school, what have you. Um, but because of that segregation, people then understood that politics of sort of the nationalist bend and party politics in particular could shape their everyday lives. So Atmanjot was often, and you'll see this in some um, more contemporary linguistic anthropology, um, I think the name is Rickerford is the last name. Um, it's kind of a, a, a phrase that's not said, but always implied. And in a kind of way of, of how people want to address themselves as either being open to the other, racialized other, or not. Um, and so that's how I experienced it. You would see it written in stone in editorials and, and political matters in terms of party politics, but unst- unstated, but very much implied um, in everyday life. Um, And so I wanted to get to understand that tension, right, because it's beyond a tension of just racial subjectivities and racial identities as such. But a kind of everyday sort of sentiment that sort of is a kind of burden that people walk around with and understand that is a burden for everyone. Right. So even if you're not a majority in 1970s Guyana or, you know, 2020 Guyana, or 2019, the last time I was there, before, right before COVID, um, you do still have a sense that you are burdened with this, this idea of voting for your own time, that historically, as I traced in the book, comes about as a clear political slogan, an active and, and sort of implemented slogan um, through the um, pre-independence moment and the attempts to identify um, parties, both internally and by foreign actors, as quote, racialized groups. On the one hand, the um, Afro-Guyanese um, PNC party, as it was understood, and the quote, Indo-Guyanese um, PPP party. And that political distinction... Um, along racial lines becomes the way in which this kind of Hindi creole term, um, apanjat, gets into circulation, again, in both the public and and private um, um, spheres of of daily life in Guyana. Um, With that said, I'm not a linguist, and so it'd be quite interesting to see the derivation of the term from um, actual um, Hindi language. But of, of colleagues who have come across this term with me, who are um, at least acquainted with Hindi, they tell me you would never hear Open. Like Open is just not something that you hear. So it's clearly a Creole, very Guyanese kind of phrase. And I don't think, for example, too, um, you hear it in Trinidad at all. So again, what I found very fascinating about this phrase, it's of the Cold War moment, and the kind of nationalist uprisings that come out of these post of Guyana's post colonial context, and it's a racialized, at least initially, kind of phrasing of how it is that you divide people along demographic lines. But with that said, um, jot you we know is a kind of um, um, phrase for caste. So it's a kind of mobile up and jot, I think in its. Ugliest but creative, most creative form possible, a kind of mobile way to understand how people are relating to one another through ideas of inclusion and exclusion.
1: Right. Yeah. No. And as a South Asianist, I think, you know, um, that struck me almost immediately, um, you know, the use of, of Jat. And Jat can both connote caste and community, right? And, and becomes this kind of. Um, marker in some ways uh, of, of who is included in, in one's jat, quote unquote, versus who is excluded. Um, the Apan I- bit is quite interesting. You wouldn't hear it in formal Hindi, but I think in Bhojpui and um, there's certain other dialects as well, um, you know, more colloquial sort of trios where Apan would be used. But clearly, I mean, um, what... Also, I'm interested in with Apunja is this the multiple temporalities, right, which you point to in in your work um, in different ways? Because clearly, this is this points to a diasporic, mobile history um, of of different times and places that are being kind of mobilized um, in Guyana, and also speaks to uh, in some ways. Um, this moment of um you know the the climate crisis that calls for a certain kind of adaptation right Um, but um in in uh the book what you're trying to say is that apanjad has kind of reached this um impasse in some ways um when these conversations around climate, climate adaptation begin to happen um, I wonder if you could kind of um, talk a little bit more about, you know, what happens when discussions around climate adaptation take over. Because, there, I mean, as you know, some of the literature kind of frames it as um, a discourse of, of expertise, right, of um, a conversation that um, happens... Um, among certain, um, you know, "quote unquote" experts, usually engineers who have a certain idea of um, what the technical or scientific or engineering stakes um, of of doing these sorts of interventions are, um, but often, you know, the the actual people impacted um, don't really have as much of a say in that conversation, but what um, you point towards is really challenging that paradigm of you know a top-down approach but really something that is essentially more fragmented and I will come to uh, a moment in your book a little later which I found really interesting in terms of um, the quote social solution right um, to this flooding problem but I yeah I, I just want um, listeners to get a sense of all of these different stakeholders that you're, you're engaging with uh, and and how they come together.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, yeah, before I like work into that, there was one other point I want to make about um, Apinjad and, and to your point, it's a diasporic moment and sort of example of, of how people think through um, community. I don't think, and I don't think I've come across a scholar who works in Trinidad, who has heard, and if they, uh, by all means I, i'd love to hear that um dialogue um around openppenshot so again like th- the very specificity by which this um linguistic claim comes about that then gets mapped on c- to community is quite fascinating and i think of course one can begin to theorize that around issues of creolization in terms of language but it also also has something to say i do very much think and to your point around how it is that these what what constitutes the political gets understood right it's the cold war works in guyana it doesn't work as much in trinidad right like it's not so much of a problem as it played out um so again um this is why the book itself works through this problem of like political sentiment and and and, and discourse as opposed to claims about simply identity or or or, or racial subjectivity um so, what does to your to your question? What does climate adaptation um, look like, and why is it not expert versus non-expert top down? I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about the Guyana case, and makes it so palpable as to why you know critical social sciences and and um, Those humanities that are also interested in in projects around thinking of climate change need to address this problem of how it is that these um, ties to political community get undone and remade because of a crisis that everyone understands are affected by obviously in different kinds of ways. And so in Guyana's context, this racial problem becomes very apparent, not only to those who feel as if they're the quote ordinary people marginalized, but also the experts themselves. Because you have this um, infrastructure system that, unlike in much of the North American context, was developed by slaves, right, was part of the project of of the labor of indentured um, workers as well. And because you then have these people who then now make claim to have power right? Unlike in much of some parts of North American context, those who were once marginalized now in power, now are those who are managing and caring for these systems. You all of a sudden have this problem where how do you understand sort of the um, um, inheritance of these projects and these very structures that were once seen to subjugate people, but now are frankly national monuments and monuments that do work and do do things and that people are not willing to give up. Uh, yet to hear anyone in Guyana say, blow up the seawall, right? Blow up the dam. No one ever said, tear these things apart. They said, do something with these things that are already here. And so it, to me, um, the most sort of visceral, visceral way to get after that kind of complicated and entangled relationship between experts and non-experts was to unpack these taken for granted, quote, care Um, categories of marginalization, which I think is more um, um, marked in terms of, say, um, these identity categories of race or gender um, or class. Um, And so the sort of old bread and butter um, identities that we assumed were always with Marked for the marginalized are actually not only for the marginalized or the non-experts um, in the context of climate adaptation, but also for the experts. And so, the fact that we need a kind of intellectual project that um, plays with those with those understandings of how it is that even the quote privileged or or the elite are implicated in becoming vulnerable themselves, I think, um, is what's fascinating and and makes thinking about climate change um, really interesting. Um, and again, that makes us then, I would say, in a gener- generous way, help us retool as scholars are taken for granted categories of subjectivity, power, um, agency, um, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Um, and you also, um, you know, in the book talk about, um, you know, in, in relation to Ghana's Political history, this the the kind of splitting of the individual versus the community. You know, the the individuated um, politics um, uh, that is kind of at a breaking point, which opens up this discussion around um, what it means to, in some ways, reform and and challenge the status quo. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I wonder if you could also speak to a little bit about how that's happening at these different levels, because you have clearly, you know, the engineers also kind of searching for this beyond their um, their kind of technical knowledge base, um, and you have figures like Margaret, who is, you know, um, a street vendor, also kind of grappling with um, the ways in which disaster and crisis call for a different kind of politics or a different kind of political engagement. And uh, yeah, what what does that kind of um, look like in terms of the politics of, of settlement and displacement?
0: Yeah, I mean, I Obviously, the individual and community, in when thinking about climate change and vulnerabilities, is not a zero sum game, right? So, if you take care of of Margaret, you're going to take care of all Black people in Guyana. No, um, if you take care of um, you know the the head boss on on the EDWC project, to, you know um, is it Hindu Indo Guyanese, you're going to take care of all Hindu Guyanese. Clearly not, right? You still have the um, um, farmers in, in 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 Hope Dutch Fort who feel marginalized by the canal. Um, I feel as if um, this is where I found it really important throughout the book to conceptually think about, you know, what are the analytics of measurement, right? And how do they get prescribed to different kinds of bodies um, and forces and processes? Um, And so I guess um, in terms of analytical framing, this is why I think Uh, thinking through intra-action through Karen Bayard's work on measuring apparatuses are so important because it gets after how it is that people literally slice and dice things in order to understand them as parts versus wholes, Um, And Unless you understand or want to take seriously ethnographically how that slicing and dicing happens, you can't have this idea of a, quote, organic system, right? You can't have this idea of, like, a society. You have to understand exactly how it is that those individuals become wholes and those wholes become parts. Um, and so this is why I think, again, right, the project of adaptation itself and how to trace it um, ethnographically or, or through an archive Um is to to think through how it is that different groups think about what it means to measure across scale, right? So past, present, um, different kinds of spatial sites, um, as well as how those different kinds of sites, how those different kinds of temporalities allow them to see community or not, right? So the ethnographic example of that community um, historically in Guyana, of the recent history and the recent past in Guyana, is that of small men right? Literally like another great sort of, um, ethnographic object to think about in, in the Guyanese case um, that comes out of the socialist moment of trying to bring together everyone across their differences from the perspective, whether one agreed with it or not, of the Burnham administration and how, quote, everyone could be the same. Of course, that didn't take into account those elites in in government. Of course, they were more or less big men. But what, what does it mean to think about small men um, versus, say, big men, right? And there is a, a a a, um a body of literature and anthropology who thinks through those categories but again um that idea of a small man comes out of a particular political moment right that at its surface doesn't seem to work so much or or come to everyone's um benefit or uh, many people's benefit um, in post-disaster Guyana. Now, Of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't other factors that are contributing to why small men doesn't make sense for a community anymore, Um, say, you know, as one could talk about um, um, logics of neoliberalism, um, as well as migration for other reasons, Um, and perhaps also to um, claims about... um, Freedoms and rights for women, as well as um, other sexual minorities in Guyana have also been ways in which people have fragmatized and rethought about what it means to be communities in Guyana, which the category small men never took into account to begin with. Um, So um, again, I think that's it's an ethnographic question, but it's an ethnographic question that can be anchored in kind of theories of of measurement right and theories of how agency gets redistributed across bodies and processes. and so Karen Bayard does that for me in
1: the book. Yes um, and i I did want to ask you a little bit more about um, your your method as well, you know um, what what it means to kind of um, think through this issue ethnographically um, in a moment of, of crisis. You also refer to Balan and you know um, thinking through their kind of notion of crisis and self- um, narrativization. But what, what is the... So I'm going to frame this question at two levels. One is um, the ethnographic method itself in terms of the actual kind of Logistics of um, of doing this kind of um, work in the wake of um, a moment like two thousand five, where this is all kind of ever real and present in some ways, um, but it also speaks to um, you know the conversation about around climate adaptation and climate uh, change being global, right? Um, and and this is again to get back to your question of scale. Um, how do we think about Guyana's place uh, within this larger kind of uh, planetary um, discourse around um, climate change, climate adaptation? Um, the second, which ties into you know that question of um, ethnographic method, and um, is ethnographic ethics in this moment, right? And you have this um, very um, interesting point in the book where you talk about um, the conversations you're having with engineers, and a lot of them are looking for social solutions, right? And they're looking to you to provide them in some ways. Um, So, you know, that, that got me thinking about what, you know an ethnographer slash anthropologist slash researcher's kind of responsibility um, outside of the you know the technical scientific um, knowledge expert kind of role is in this moment and in in this yeah. larger yeah. works so, sorry yeah. that was a lot but no no no, no, no.
0: that's that's that. really helpful and a good, and a great question no i think it, and this last point, uh, like my responsibility, I, I realized very quickly that there was no way I was going to write a project that was personally interesting for me or told the story about what was happening in Guyana if I didn't quote tell both sides. And both sides, meaning in the very kind of like um, antiquated, sort of like the, like we were saying, experts over here, non-experts over there. Um, and so I just knew internally, and that's, I know that's not satisfying, that um, my, I wouldn't be satisfied with this project if I only told a story of engineers or if I only told a story of Margaret or if I only told a story of of. of um, the dude of, of, of the family of farmers in hope Dutch 4, or if I only told the story of the CDC, the military um, personnel who t- took on these projects. Um, so I realized, and, you know, I got that feedback a lot when I had drafts of the book. Well, this isn't going to be sufficient. If you think you're going to tell me about engineers, like why isn't the whole book about engineers, or this isn't going to be sufficient if you're only, or which was a bit more damning and, and telling of at least where, american anthropology is um oh yes this is so great because i love the chapter on 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 sophia that tells me everything no it does not tell you everything and i would want to wonder why and what your framework or reference is that you think only telling you about you know suffering or marginalization brings about your understanding of climate change because that's not the only story and so i think no matter where one works um Climate change necessitates a reimagining of ethnographic and research, to your point, methods in general, which is the whole story needs to be told. And so it's not just to saying there's an analysis of a system here, right? And then the localized and the case studies down here. No, in fact, our history of ideas have allowed us to make that separation. And now we have to think again analytically about how it is that those two stories, the case study and the system, actually. Um, overlap with one another. And that's what ch- climate change in a very kind of didactic solutionist um, language and discourse has 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 um, brought to us, right? You see that every day in the news, right? You see that every day in National Geographic reports, what have you. But I think then too, that means, you know, scholars need to begin to reflect on what are the methods, what are the analytical um, frameworks that we can begin to use that bring them together as well, this is actually what's happening. It's not a quote political or ethical choice simply to say, I study the engineers or I study those who are in former squatter towns. No, the the responses, they have always been connected. And how do we tell that story? Um now, that's not easy. Um, and so to the point about the first half of your question, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like, so Guyana, like, oh, we all know it's a small place. Most people don't know where it is on a map um, just because why, you know, why would they unless they had personal reason to? Because in American media or in history, you'd never really hear about Guyana. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, and this is kind of um Maybe old school of me, but just as much as we talked about multiple modernities or multiple localities, there are also multiple planetary or planet or planetary perspectives, right? So whatever site you might be in gives you a particular planetary perspective on what it means to live through climate change. And so I think that also means that we have to take seriously that when we talk about climate change, again, to your point, it's not this kind of like top down sort of approach of, well, we have to explain what carbon emissions are. And then we explain what the local risk is. And then we explain what the vulnerability is. No, that's, that might not even be the way that your informants come about understanding climate change. So there's also the ethnographic and sort of um, intellectual responsibility to take seriously about how your informants come to thinking about climate change, right? And getting out of this kind of, perhaps, maybe you can say North American ideological framework that climate denial means you don't understand the science of climate change, or you don't care about the science of climate change. When in fact, no, people might take up the language of climate change in very different ways and see it happening, But they might not always um, understand it as reduced to carbon emissions. You know, most people in Guyana, unless they were um, state workers, bureaucrats or consultants coming in, talked about carbon emissions. There wasn't really a need to. Right. But they understood flooding was happening. They understood the intensity in flooding in different kinds of ways. And yes, it happened to be in Guyana's context. You had a state who was, quote, climate conscious. But that's a very particular moment that I work through ethnographically. But you might live in Florida and you might not have as many state bureaucrats who are, so, quote, climate conscious. But you sure as heck will have people on the ground who understand what, you know, Hurricane Ian is compared to um, Andrew um, 30 years ago. So I think there's a kind of nuanced way in which um or the responsibility is to be a bit more nuanced in how we approach our informants on the ground about how they think about climate change in multiple ways, as well as how we frame the planetary as multiple, not just as singular.
1: Right. Yeah. No, and I I think that, you know, to your point about um, the ways in which um, this can never be a conversation just about um, engineers or just about um, you know, landholders, or just about—you know—it um, has to kind of think about um, the stakeholders, well, in some ways, as of of climate change, and, and therefore adaptation, consequently, um, as somewhat more um, kind of diffuse, right? Um, that it isn't necessarily, um, and as as we've already discussed. Um, one or the other party that is um, affected more or benefiting more um, than the other that it is kind of. Um, but I, I want to kind of go back to um, your you know your entry into Guyana in the post- 2005 moment. Um, you said you went first. Um, in two thousand six, how does two thousand five itself, you know, the flooding disaster then um, become an archive of thoughts um, of this kind of kind, you know, knowledge around um, disaster and and this interplay between the past and the future, right? Because I, I think you you open with this, and it is really quite powerful. But I but I also um, want to kind of think with you a little bit about um what this um what this moment does for you.
0: Yeah, that's a difficult question. Because I was personally hesitant about wanting to start with the disaster. And it'll go and it went back to the, you know, God, no one knows where guyon is, no one cares about Guyana. You know, my and, and my intellectual insecurities, right, about how do you make this project beyond the case study of a place that no one cares about, no one knows about. And damn me if I start with a disaster, right? And so I had to work through that myself, still am. But with that said, it helped me, and, and I guess I'll talk about this in terms of research method, having the disaster gave me a, a beginning point to, to ask, okay, wait, So what came before this? Literally, what came before this? And how am I going to find this in the archive? Because I can't sit in the archive all day and say, if I'm lucky and they even want to give it to me, give me all of your boxes on drainage. Like, that's absurd. And by the way, most of those boxes would have not been under the category drainage. It would have been under the category of agriculture or land tenure neither one of those topics was what i was centrally interested in so the disaster itself made me think okay when else as i'm reading through this archive am i going to find something about um, really bad flooding and so 2005 then gave me a marker to say okay i can follow when people were talking about really bad flooding and then that allowed me to say okay Let me figure out this archive of these flood events that aren't really captured, Um, even for local historians or um, professional historians, particularly Walter Rodney, um, far and few between in the Guyana context. But, you know, flooding is so taken for granted. It's just there because it happens all the time. Everyone knows it's going to happen. So then how do you find sort of the pin needle in that stack of hay that actually makes sense to plot? This very particular story of the changes that had that eventually occurred with the EDWC. And so the 2005 disaster um, allowed me to do that to see how the engineer how engineers in the present were thinking about flooding and how that idea of flooding then um, perhaps. As I would find out, was different um, in the past, and so it was the sort of key language or the or the key concepts that the engineers are talking about in the present as a result of the 2005 disaster that then became some became things that I literally looked for in the archive, um, as opposed to some general category of flooding. Um, in terms of like what the 2005 disaster does for thinking about um, histories, well, for sure. I couldn't think about disasters as events anymore. It made me think about um, them as parts of structures, different kinds of structures, whether they be political, social, or the literal material um, makeups of these dams. Um, So I began to think in more creative ways about what kind of history I wanted to tell about Guyana. And I think that's what climate change and adaptation projects um, allow for in a very real way. It's It's asking you to think critically about why it is that the histories we had before made this unquote unprecedented or something that we didn't expect. Um, And so the adaptation projects then make you rethink about the evidence that you're using in order to tell the stories of a place. Um, And so, like, that's very much something I learned from engineers about their everyday practice and, like, oh, wait, this is actually really helpful for me as a. anthropologists also interested in how these people are drawing on archives it's very much about how they're piecing and pulling together evidence in the present in order to tell you what happened and that evidence is really shaping how it is that you can tell stories about the past as well um and i think that you know perhaps for professional historians and academic historians um That's obvious. But when you're forced to, as these engineers, put the present together in a very kind of like effective and material way with the past, there is a new kind of urgency. And as you were using the language, responsibility to doing that, that I don't think anthropologists have had in the past. And if I may say so, um, some historians, right? To have to do both at the same time is a very particular project.
1: Right. And yeah, I mean, in terms of the these connections, right? And and I think you do in in the book as well talk about the ways that um, engineers' situated knowledge as well takes on these kinds of um, historical, social, political kind of um, realities. Um, I. I want to also kind of think a little bit about um, these connections, right? You have 2005, of course, but you also have 1934. Um, you have so um, what? What does this this kind of um, disasters process kind of paradigm, uh, in some ways, as opposed to discrete events, um, do for for us both as kind of um, Looking at this social scientifically in 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 terms of our own research, but also in terms of the ways um, it plays out um, on the ground, um, and, and you also have the EWC and Pegasi kind of um, question, right? Um, the materiality of it all, and and how um, uh, these these claims to um, using um, certain kinds of of techniques, of certain kinds of materials, also um, build on longer histories, right? That are both local to Guyana, but also um, go beyond, right? We we have you talk talking about twentieth century damming history, and um, you know how that plays into um, some of the considerations um, that engineers are making. Um, so, yeah, if, if you could kind of just speak broadly about um, this this more capacious, um, broad conception of disaster as, as something that is generative in some ways, um, uh, but is also not discrete, right? That um, the, its generativeness also comes out of this this process-oriented approach to thinking about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, in a kind of, like, superficial, like, way that just came to mind, the phrasing, it's like, even when a disaster happens, like, everything doesn't fall apart, right? Like, again, right, there's this still kind of, forensic's not the right word, but there's still this kind of evidence there, these things that, that, are functioning now in different ways. It doesn't necessarily mean they failed or have completely um, broken and fallen apart, but now they're going to do something different. And because they're going to do something different, that means you have a different, um, you now have a different lens on what happened in the past. Um, and because of that different lens, you can now start creating new narratives about what that future, what it up, possible or different kind of future can be. And I think that is the work of adaptation, like fundamentally in any context is is you're asking, what has actually changed and why? And what are the different kinds of tools and different um, objects or artifacts we, we can use in order to now think anew? Um, and so disasters are just one of many different kinds of events that can lead to adaptation. So um, as we see now in the US, post COVID, now that there's funding, Everyone's now in on adaptation, right? Which is a point I want to get back to. But we don't need a disaster to tell us to do adaptation. It happens to be that in global south contexts, arguably since the early 2000s, because of the funding structures for post disaster assistance, which is usually or was usually humanitarian, you were in a space where it became easy to kind of experiment or have a lab, if you will, through the UN and other um, related funding agencies to say, oh, look, What's adapta- climate adaptation going to look like? Because we're collecting this, av- this data on climate change, we're also not necessarily sure if all these um, events can be related to climate change. But you know, we have a hunch, we have a suspicion. So we now have this new policy framework called climate adaptation. We have different kinds of experts on the ground, and we're going to try to piece together this puzzle and understand why the past is not the same as what as as what we want the future to be. Um, And so disaster, uh, the bigger picture, and perhaps the point is maybe in 10 or 15 years, we understand um, climate adaptation is just not about responding to a disastrous event. Disaster is one of many events that can lead to adaptation, which is a new kind of way to structure um, society and ideas of community um, and engineering and and whatever else, technology, economy, et cetera. So yeah, disaster is, is is one of many events, and why is it that in some contexts we privilege disaster over others to think through climate change and adaptation? We might get a lot of ugly and not so nice responses as to why that's the case. Um, but I think that's what the reality of things are, and so, um, you know, Ghana now is in a different sorry. Uh, just one last point: Ghana is now in a different kind of political context where they have oil, and so. You know with sea defense constructions for example um and adaptation projects coming through from all new and different kinds of pipelines right it's not just in the specter of 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 the two thousand five
1: disaster so. right yeah no and I, I think you know the the specter of, of capital in in all of this and and you know more global flows of um of information knowledge and and kind of the the overarching umbrella of of, uh, climate adaptation does play a role. And even in the book, when you talk about the Red Cross, um, but you also kind of gesture towards how, um, in a Global South context, um, it can often kind of be easy to draw a link between developmentalism right um as, as project and policy and climate adaptation but um, what you're saying is that they're two distinct kind of projects at least in the Guyanese case um, and yeah I I want to um, you know invite you to speak a little bit more about that, because I, I find that in terms of the political stakes and the way that we splice up the world, right, um, or the planet in terms of global north, global south, um, that developmentalism and you know the idea of the laboratory has always been kind of um, thought of in terms of um, the global south as the site where it's happening and it and it continues to be the framing device um, for how much of the global south is um, narrated. But how do we, um, yeah, how do we disent- disentangle um, the yeah. two?
0: Yeah. Well, so I, I mean, in a very kind of ethnographic way, like, if development is about following um, what economic models are telling you as the output, climate adaptation does not necessarily do that. Now, you can have climate adaptation projects that might be linked to development projects, but on the ground, climate adaptation is using all different kinds of models that are not necessarily economic models in order to tell you, or or suggest, or offer you a pathway by which to um, figure out your project and its end goals. So, I mean, just like ethnographically being in the field, like that was such a refresher to even like engage engineers and just hear them talk about. The friction between like, yeah, this might be our budget line and this might have been the national development strategy for the past 15 years, but this climate adaptation project is going to do X, Y and Z. And I'll tell you why it will do X, Y and Z, because our models that are not economic models will tell us it's going to do X, Y and Z. So um, intellectually, I think we need to be a bit more um, generous in terms of reading what the political stakes are on the ground for climate adaptation, which is not always necessarily ones that are wrapped up in ideologies of development. They can be, but that they don't have to be. Um, and Ghana, was a case, um, and particularly in that moment, and I think it's because of the specter of the 2005 disaster, that people needed to think otherwise and creatively. Now, with that said, and you're right, and I totally agree, the Global South has been, and, it, and it's constructed in many UN and, and and World Bank sort of frameworks as simply sites of development. But climate adaptation in UN language is very, very particular, which is every part of the world needs to figure out adaptation, and however that's going to look, and however that's going to be structured. So what is so fascinating, and I you know, and I'm trying to write about this now, um, in more detail. Is that if that's really the case historically, then you have this interesting moment where, quote, scientific modernity fails first in the global south for what we might see as obvious reasons of a lack of political or or functional support. But then adaptation is where it starts, right? So adaptation then becomes this interesting case of we are re-narrating history from those who are once seen as marginalized right the uk puts in its first climate adaptation project in 2013 you know as we were saying before the us in a fundamental in a national kind of way brings about it post covid but you have places like guyana places in the south pacific places in south asia who have had climate adaptation projects on the book now for at least almost an over a decade so how do we begin to tell this story of adaptation and particularly one that's um um marked and shaped by claims of scientific modernity as well as other kinds of alternative ways of knowing? is now shaping kind of the future and how we see living with climate change. I think that's a very interesting and ambitious um, way of seeing and thinking about what climate change has to offer. And one that pushes against perhaps the normative politics of justice that comes out of, say, the UN or comes out of um, activist framings of, well this is just a problem of debt. No, it's not a problem of debt. It's a new kind of way of positioning and taking leadership and rethinking creatively what it means to use technology to be to, to, to democratize, if you will, expertise. I would like a better framing or language for that. But I think it's, it's a very different question uh, of what it means to think about a future where you have climate adaptation emanating and originating from places that are not part of the said global north first, right? um so i i think that's something to always keep in mind
1: <clears throat> yeah um and i think that's a wonderful kind of segue into um you know what i thought would be my next question um about where you see um you know both of the fields that you're kind of engaging with actually you're engaging with more than just two of these fields but um i i'm just trying to kind of um situate this in terms of both Caribbean studies, right, Um, you know, and uh, thinking back to, um, you know, uh, Walter Rodney as this kind of Guyanese intellectual and and the way that he situated Guyana's history and where we are now um, in terms of the way that we think about um, the Caribbean, about Guyana, about plantation economy slavery um indentured labor um you know what this moment does for us differently um and then also kind of the environmental humanities um and i suppose i could club sts with that science and technology studies in terms of thinking about the way that these um discourses around climate change climate uh, adaptation are um Challenging some of the um, the ways in which um, these histories have and then these stories have traditionally been told, right? Um, so I, I, I just wonder if you could speak to what you think um, you know um, the ways forward are for the fields that you're situ- situating yourself in.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess. I, I, I was hope, I was hoping selfishly the book could just have just said that, <laughs> <laughs> but no book, but no book could. Um, I mean, I guess in a very kind of like practical way, I hope those who come after me don't feel so burdened to have to say and to have to. I mean, lack of a better phrasing right now in the moment, proof that a place like Diana matters to a global and planetary history of climate change. Like, so I would think trying to piece together, right. The STS influence and the Caribbean studies influence um, of this project. And of course, environmental humanities being an umbrella for all of that. I would hope that um, scholarship that comes after me doesn't, wouldn't feel, and maybe that's my own insecurity, whatever proof, or have to prove that places like this matter to actually telling the story of what is actually happening and as opposed to just being an exception or, um, Oh, you know, um, just the particular case. Right. Um, but in terms of the, of Caribbean studies literature, I would say like beyond the question of race and how that became a kind of, uh, you know, and I've said this before, uh, a move of thinking gatekeeping concepts for area studies in general. I was always, and, and I think this problem of quote nature and environment in environmental anthropology and environmental studies more generally, and for a while had been assumed to be a problem of commodification. And even for those who wanted to uh, have for a savvy sort of critical reading of, of environmental studies and say people like Sidney Mintz or people working on plantation economies offered us a reading of nature. It was still very much a reading of nature through modes of commodification. And what became very clear to me with climate adaptation is that that wasn't the only language, again, just like the developmentalist logics were not the only languages being used to talk about environment and to talk about nature's, um as they played out on the ground. Um, and so... I think part of the work of this project then was to say, look, there's a space in Caribbean studies and its historical claims about how you think about slavery, how you think about indentured servitude, how you think about um, processes of racialization that could also um, take from STS and for sure STS could learn from those histories of processes of racialization and historical forms of, of commodified labor. So it was this sort of attempt to put into dialogue um, this way of rethinking environment and nature through Caribbean studies and using Caribbean studies to rethink processes of, of, of sociality and, and racialization that I felt um, STS needed, right? It wasn't just sort of marking questions of science and technology through expert or non-expert or gender, frankly. It was also how these categories Right? intersect with one another um, and, and taking that seriously. Um, and you know of course Caribbean studies being as we all know, um, a, in anthropology, a way to rethink claims of indigeneity in place. Um, climate change in its own way in a general um, sort of um, way of thinking about it um, disrupts ideas of place and, and natality and yes, um, in very particular ways. And so if you already have the ongoing conversation in Caribbean studies about you know what it means to think diasporically, right, and to think about the ways in which people make claim to home when they're forced to do that in in different kinds of ways, um, it becomes an interesting um case and claim to to think more broadly about climate change. Um right. And so I, I, I think in those kinds of, you know, big ambitious ways, that's why oh uh, that's that's importance I saw in, in bridging those dialogues between Caribbean studies and STS um, around this environmental humanities um, wave. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, and I I do hope that there is, um, you know, a lot more scholarship along the lines that you have uh, kind of uh, opened up uh, for us with engineering vulnerability, because I think it is, um, both very important and um, truly kind of um, interesting to think with and, um, you know, and to to reimagine, um, uh, you know, uh, possibilities for all of these fields. Um, but I also, you know, before we end, I, I'd like to hear a little bit, um, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, about what your next project is after... Engineering vulnerability. Um, I'm sure
0: it's uh, gonna be- so I'm so I've, right now. I'm thinking through two things. Um, one is just like what technology is in climate adaptation um, conversations, and what does it look like, and how does it become a problem at hand? Why is it that in climate change debates, technology is sort of just taken for granted and seen as just an obvious thing that we turn to either to Blame and, and say this is why it's happening, or to say oh this is what could be new or different, um, and try to problematize what technology is. The other project, actually, just I was just in Bermuda this past year doing field work on um, on how insurance reinsurance industry reinsurance is basically a financial service that provides insurance for insurance companies. <laughs> how they're addressing climate change, um, and again. Um, I don't think it's an accident that not just offshore finance, but particularly questions about um, climate change itself comes through insurance, of course, but also comes through through a place like Bermuda. So, um, you know, that's like very, very fresh in my mind. But so it, it's trying to work through these. I, I see envision like these three critical steps in thinking about climate change, critical climate change studies and scholarship. One being this kind of like, on the ground sort of understanding of how political identities have shifted. The other is this critical take on like how technology itself becomes implemented in, in this project of in debates about climate change. And the other then is, you know, economy. So a kind of like critical reading of like what what climate studies can be and, and can think through thematically is how I've been thinking about these projects.
1: Wow, that sounds all of those sound really exciting, particularly thinking about um, you know the, the ways in which technology and, and finance and insurance in some ways intersect, right? Um, and um, in, in the conversations around climate change and the way that they play out. So thank you so much, Sarah. This was such a wonderful conversation um, and I'm looking forward to engaging more with your work in the future.
0: Of course. And thank you for the invitation. And it was a lovely conversation. So thanks for the opportunity.